growing up, I, I used to like to watch a show that was called Ripley's Believe It or Not. How many of you guys have ever seen the show or read the book, Ripley's Believe It or Not? And, and what happens in Ripley's Believe It or Not? They will show you unbelievable, preposterous story. And you think it's fake, but then they'll give you picture evidence to show you proof that the story is actually real. And this morning, I'm going to give you a couple of unbelievable stories. Ripley's are believe, believe it or not reported. The first one is a man by the name of Zayuna Chana. He is 66 year old. He's an Indian man, and he lives in northwest, northeast India. He has 39 wives. Can you imagine that honeydew list on a Saturday? 39 wives. Lord, I love my wife, but one is good. And I love it, though. Don't get me wrong. I love it. 39. 94 children. 33 grandchildren. And they all live in the same four-story, 100-room building. Can you imagine going to H-E-B and buying the groceries for that many people? <laughs> that's like, like five-year salary just for that, right? It's safe to bet that Ziona Chana wouldn't be impressed, impressed with 19 kids and counting or sister wives at all. He's like, they got nothing on me. The next story I thought was absolutely unbelievable. It's a story of a Japanese tsunami survivor found 10 miles out at sea. How many of you guys like going cruising? This is not the cruise that you want to go on. 60-year-old Armotashi Shinkawa was rescued after a devastating tsunami hit Japan. He was found on the roof floating two days later, nearly 10 miles out at sea. He was spotted as he clung to the wreckage with one hand and had a self-made red flag with the other. Unbelievable. I would have died in panic within an hour because I can't swim. Like, man, sharks, man, that'd be crazy. Can you imagine just floating out on sea for 10 days? And this morning, we're continuing our series called Fake News. Because see, in our culture, it's hard to discern what is fake and what is real. We're living in the greatest era of information access. People will watch videos, they'll read articles, and they won't take a minute to ascertain whether or not what they're being told is true or not. And it's not just with fake news. And as I thought about that, it's also there's a lot of all kind of false teachings going out there about the gospel. Like, how many of you guys ever heard something? You're like, man, I don't know if this is right or not. Like, man, it sounds good. But have you listened to a podcast or a preacher? And you're like, man, uh, this doesn't sit right with my spirit. Or how do I know if it's true? Like, how do you know if the podcast you listen to or the person that you're constantly downloading or the preacher is actually preaching the gospel? How do we know whether it's fake news or the real good news of the gospel? Well, this is not a problem that just happens in our church, but it's a problem that happened way back in the times of Paul. The Apostle Paul was addressing some fake news and some fake gospels that was coming into the church at Coloss. The church was having a hard time discerning what is false and what is the true gospel. There were false teachings that were coming. Judaism was coming into the church, and they were putting all kinds of rules and regulations in the church. But not only was Judaism coming in, there's another group called the Gnostics and Gnosticism that was coming in. And these people were, had all this deep spirituality, and they talked about the hidden things of God, and they said flesh is bad and spirit is good. And they were bringing all these false things into the church, and the church was having a hard time to distinguish, like, what's true, what's not. And today, hopefully by the end of the sermon, you'll have a better understanding is when you hear the gospel, like, man, this is kind of how I know what is true, and this is how I know what is false when it comes to the gospel. And we're going to learn from the words of Paul as he addresses the church in Colossians. And this is the thing he talks about in Colossians chapter 2 is where he really gets down to exposing the lies of false gospel. Let's pick up this letter in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I want you to know how I have agonized for you. Paul opens up 
by telling the church he has agonized for them. This word is talking about this distress of being separated from somebody. Every parent has had this feeling at one time or another. Parents, be honest with me. How many guys have lost your kid at one time or another? You've lost your kid at one time. Like, like you are in a park or you're in the mall or you're out there and you look around and you look back and like, where are they? And, and, and especially if you're looking around, you're like, man, you think, ah, they're not there. And then after every second and every minute turns to like an hour and, and you can't find them, you were certainly are there and you start calling their name, Alana, Nevaeh. And then you start screaming frantically, where are you? Where are you? And they're hiding from you. How many of you guys have ever seen like that? Or, or they're looking at a toy. I mean, I have lost my kids in a couple of occasions. And I remember one of the most uh, notorious times that I lost my kids was when we first moved down to uh, Round Rock. Actually, we were living in Austin at the time. And Jennifer wanted to go shopping. And I was getting ready to plant the church. And I was working on a sermon. And I was looking, working on the plans to plant a church. And I said, I used a great babysitter at the time. Her name was Dora the Explorer. I know people don't watch Dora anymore. But girls, y'all want you to watch. Wow, God is raining on us. <laughs> we put on Dora the Explorer. And I went and I worked for what I thought was about a half an hour. And I came back. And Alana's there, but there's no Nevea. I'm like, where's your sister? She's like, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, she has to be hiding Opened every closet, looked under every bed. Nevaeh, 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 where are you? And I started panicking. You know that, like, where are they? Where are they? I can't find them. And then I look again. Still no. And then I look again. Still there. Now I got to make the horrible phone call of telling Jennifer that I lost our daughter in our apartment. I'm probably the only dad that's lost a daughter in her own apartment. So I called Jennifer and I said, babe, what are you doing right now? I'm about to check out. I got all the girls' Christmas gifts. Uh, let me tell you something. I lost Nevaeh. What? Where did you go? Nowhere. Where did you lose her? In the apartment. Nah, you're just kidding with me. But you could tell in my voice there was a tremendous amount of angst and anxiety. I had lost her. She dropped everything. And literally, I'm like, Alana, you stay here. I'm locking the door. I'm going to go out there. Could she, I know she's only like one foot tall, but maybe she might have reached. I don't know. I'm looking everywhere, you know. Because she got out of the apartment. Was it absolutely open? Like, I'm, I'm screaming. I'm looking everywhere. It seemed like hours. It was probably just like 20, 25 minutes. I'm asking all my neighbors, where's Nevaeh? Where's Nevaeh? I come back in after searching for her frantically all around the apartment. And homegirl was there sucking her thumb, man, with her sister laughing. Oh, you couldn't find me, daddy. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to find you now. I'm the worst at hide-and-go-seek, so you can hide in. Like, I can't find anything. Like, babe, where's the ketchup? Oh, there it is. Right, it's right in front of me. I could not find my own daughter in my own house. But that is kind of the agony that this word is describing, Paul says. He feels this way about the church, about the fake news, about the false gospel that is threatening to take away the believers from the true gospel. He says, man, there's an opportunity that they might be lost because if they believe another gospel, they will lose the truth of what the true gospel is all about. And then in verse 2, Paul tells us his goal in writing this letter. He tells us in verse 2 and verse 4, first thing, I want them to be encouraged. So this is what I want them to do. This latter part of verse 2, he says, I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. And that's interesting there. And I'll break that down later and I'll unpack that. And then there's verse 4. I am telling you this so no one will deceive you with well-crafted arguments. Paul wanted the church to be encouraged. He wanted them to know Jesus, and he wanted them not to be deceived by false teaching. And I want to show you the goal of fake news and false gospels and false teachings. The first goal of false teaching is to discourage you. 
Paul, that's why Paul says in verse 2, I want them to be encouraged. Paul knew that if you would mix Judaism into Christianity, you would create discouragement among these young believers. And let me tell you something about religion. Religion gets you discouraged. Because here's the thing about religion. No matter what, you'll never be good enough. You'll never meet the requirements. You'll never be disciplined enough. And the Paul knew as the Jews were teaching all these regulations and all these rules and all these rituals and all the things that they needed to go from Judaism and he would mix it into Christianity, it would create this unbearable burden for these new believers to come in that they could never live up to. How many of you guys have ever been there? You wanted to follow Jesus. You wanted to walk with God. And you're like, Jesus, I really want to follow you. But everybody puts all these burdens, all these things. Oh, you got to act this certain way. you got to do this. you got to pray this certain amount of time. They, they tell you all these things. You're like, oh my God. There's no way I can ever live up to that. And that's a challenge. Because I've been discouraged with my faith so many times. I remember giving my heart to God as a young man. I wanted to follow him. But I always jack up. I always messed up. Like, man, how many of you guys ever prayed, prayer? Lord, I'm never going to do that again. I don't need to do it like within 24 hours. <laughs> Raise your hand. And that was me. And I prayed that prayer, Lord, I'm never going to do that again. And I find myself doing the same thing all over again. I was so discouraged and so disappointed. So down. And one of my best friends in Bible college come up to me and, they say, and he told me, his name was Darren. He said, Benito, why are you so discouraged? I messed up, man. God don't love me. He hates me. I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah, and he looked me in the eyes and says, Benito, what did you do to make God love you? I said, nothing. Then he said this, what do you think you can do to make God stop loving you? Nothing. See, there's nothing that I can do to earn God's love. And there's nothing that I can do to make God love me. It's all a grace. And it's what John talks about, that it is this perfect love that casts out all fear. I don't work for God's approval. I work from God's approval. And that changes everything. Even when I mess up, I know he still loves me. So therefore, I don't want to do that because I want to please my father. And that's exactly what he's saying here is Paul is saying that this religion will discourage you. Religion says you need Jesus plus something. And here is a false gospel equation, and here is the true gospel. The true gospel is this, that Jesus plus anything else equals nothing but dead religion and false news. And the fake news that was spreading was this, that the Jews were telling them, the church in Colossae, you got to do all these things. You, got, you, you, got, you can't touch this. You got to move in. You got to follow the ceremonies. But look what Paul tells them in verse 21. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. You know what all those religion, man, I call that doo-doo religion. Just do a whole lot of stuff. You know what doo-doo does? It stinks, right? It makes the gospel stink. And Paul calls it self-made religion. Religion is all about performance. Islam says that if you believe in Allah and you take pilgrimages to the Mecca and follow the pillars of faith, Allah will be pleased. And if your good works outweigh your bad works, you will make it to heaven. Jehovah Witnesses say that if you work really hard and you go door to door and you convert enough people, you'll become one of the 144,000. Hindus believe if you, more, if you do more good things than bad things, you will appease the gods and you will have enough karma to make in a higher life form. Religion says do, but the gospel says it's done by Jesus Christ because he lived the life you could have never lived and he died the death you should have died and he did what you could never do. It's a work of Christ alone. Most people that I talk to that are turned off to church and discouraged by churches because they went to churches that taught this, Jesus plus Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that, please, Jesus plus my good works, Jesus plus all these things. My church growing up taught me Jesus plus. 
I went to a church where everything was a sin. How many guys, everything was a sin? Like, wearing a, if you're a lady, wearing a dress was a sin. Going dancing was a sin. Going to the prom was a sin. Going to the movies was a sin. Like, everything was a sin. Like, man, even thinking about sin was a sin. I'm like, I'm sinning all the time. How many guys can relate? It's horrible. And maybe you have a church background where you've thought that Paul has a word for you. In verse 16, he says, don't let anyone condemn you. He says, pretty much by what you do, by what you eat, by what you drink, for celebrating certain holy holidays or moon, new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules, I love this, are only shadows of the reality yet to come. But what is this? And Christ himself is that reality. They were just pointing to the thing that ultimately would save you, and that thing is Jesus Christ. And Peter is, and Paul is saying this, that these rules and these regulations that the Judaizers are putting on the church is destroying them. And so many times the church, we do this to people. We put a lot of conditions on coming to Christ. If you come to Christ, you need to quit cussing. You need to quit drinking. You need to quit watching rated R's. You need to quit chewing. And you need to quit growing with girls who do chew and all that stuff. Like it. <laughs> but I got great news for you. It's gospel news. Christianity is not about quitting anything. You don't have to quit something before you accept Jesus. Paul said it like this in verse 13. God makes you alive in Christ. That means that the new life comes inside of you and he changes all your desires. See, Christianity is not about doing the right things because none of us in our own power can do the right things. Christianity is about desiring the right things, of having a new appetite and a brand new desire and the spirit of God empowers you to live a life you can never live and he gives you brand new desires. This is the way I like to say it. You've heard me say it many times. There's a pig and there's a sheep. And when a pig gets in the mud, he loves the mud. He rolls around in the mud, eats all that nasty food. When a sheep gets in and falls in the mud, what does he do? gets up he cleans himself says i don't belong here this is not who i am anymore i don't want to play in the mud why do they act so differently because they have different natures and the bible says when you come to jesus you have a new nature and the new life of christ comes inside of you i remember when i gave my heart to christ all my friends in high school said oh benito now that you're a christian man oh it's going to be so boring for you bro Man, bye, man. You can't have fun anymore. You can't sleep around. You can't party. You can't cuss. You can't do all the fun things. Man, you can't do anything anymore. And, and I remember looking at him and says, man, you know what? It's a free country. I can do whatever I want to do. It's not that I can't do those things anymore. I don't want to do those things anymore. See, those things were what I looked for happiness and joy left me empty. But I found the new life of Christ. And he is giving me peace and joy and happiness. And I don't look to those things for happiness anymore. Christ has met everyone my knees and he has made me alive and that's what it means to be a christian and then paul tells us in verse two he says this and this is powerful i want you to get this i want them and i love the word complete confidence like man i want you to have some swag in your walk with god i want you to walk around like things are taken care of i want you to have complete confidence how does that complete confidence happen that they understand God's mysterious plan. Underline, highlight, smiley face, the word mysterious. Because I'm going to come back and I'll unpack that. And what's the plan? The plan is, which is Christ himself. Paul here uses the word mysterious intentionally. It's a Greek word called apocryphos. It's an important Greek word. It's a word that refers to something that was somewhat hidden. 
This word was the very word that the false teachers, the Gnostics, used to refer in their writings. And it means this was the hidden plan of God. Their books were called the Apocrypha. Maybe you guys may have heard of those books. Paul says it's not a mysterious plan of God. He says don't get caught up in all these hidden meanings. What's the plan of God? What does he say? What is it? It's a mysterious plan. Do you know what that mysterious plan? It's Christ himself. Christ alone is the plan of God. See, the Gnostics taught that Christ was like the ABCs of Christianity. He was like the stepping stone. But man, you got to like, he's like the diving board into the pool. But once you get into there, then you, walk, then you find the deep hidden things of God. How many guys said, man, there's deep things of God. There's the hidden things of God. And people, people are always talking about like, I want to get deep with God. Always be, always be weary of people that talk about that. This is what Paul is saying. There's no such thing as the deep things of God. There's one plan of God, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's not just the diving board. He is the pool itself. He's not the ABCs. He is the A through Zs. You can never grow by going beyond Jesus. You grow by getting your faith deeper into Jesus. You can't add to Jesus because Jesus is the entire plan. There is no backup plan. And every story in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Every one of them. Let me give you a couple of examples. See, the Old Testament is Jesus concealed. The New Testament is Jesus revealed. Augustine said that the Old Testament is a fully furnished room that can only be seen when you open up the light of the New Testament and, sign and see it through the, Old, the New Testament. And when we look at all these stories in the Old Testament, sometimes we read them as disconnected stories. But they're not disconnected stories. See, the story of creation in Genesis chapter 1 is not the story of Adam and Eve in creation. It's the story of Jesus. How Jesus was the true and better Adam. How Adam's disobedience and failure at the garden, man, brought judgment to all of mankind. But Jesus in the garden of the Gethsemane submitted to God, surrendered to God. And because he passed the test at the garden, his obedience brought blessing to all mankind. And then you look at Cain and Abel. About one brother killing another brother. We think, what's all that? Well, here is what it's all about. There was a brother that killed a brother. But what happens? Man, one brother's blood cried out for their, cried out for judgment that something needed to be done. But there was another brother named Jesus, and we were the brother that killed him. And his blood didn't cry out for our judgment. His blood cried out that we are free. Every story, I can preach about it day after day. I can stay here for hours showing you how every story in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Jesus is the plan of God. And that's what Paul is telling the church of Colossae here. He says it's all about Jesus. And here's what we know. False teachings will do one thing. They will diminish Jesus. They will diminish the role of Jesus in faith. People ask me all the time, don't all religions say the same thing? Not about Jesus. If you were to ask a Jehovah Witness, they would say Jesus was an archangel and a created being that became a man. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was not God, but only a man who became one of many gods, and he was the half-brother of Lucifer. Buddhism teaches that Jesus was not God, but he was an enlightened man like Buddha. Islam teaches that Jesus was merely a man and a prophet who was inferior to Muhammad. If you were to ask a Scientologist who was Jesus, they would say this. He is an implanted, he is an implanted, he's an implant forced upon Thetom about a million years ago. Somebody say, Pastor B, can you explain that? No, I can't. Why? I've never been high on drugs like that in my brain. 
My imagination has a limit. It's hard to follow a faith where Tom Cruise is the evil doppelganger of Billy Graham, right? Just saying. But I can tell you who Jesus is. Jesus is the maker of heaven and earth. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the soon coming king. He is the Lord of lords. He is the prince of peace. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the tribe, lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the sinless savior. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the lamb of God who takes the sins of the world away. He is God. And he is the centerpiece of all faith. And one of my big concerns I have for you as a pastor that I agonize this is that many times in church, we reduce Jesus to formulas and steps. Many people believe that Jesus is a means to an end. That Jesus exists to make me a better leader. That he exists that I can be a better husband or a better wife. That he exists so I can be a better father or a better mother. That Jesus is here so I can be more successful. That Jesus is here so I can be more respected in my community. Let me tell you, when you follow Jesus, some of those things happen. But that's not what Jesus exists for. Jesus is not a means to an end. Faith is all about Jesus. And if those things never happen, he is still worthy. Charles Spurgeon, an old-time preacher who is known as the Prince of Preachers, had much to say about preaching in Jesus. And I want to share with you some of the quote, his quotes this morning. First, a sermon without Christ is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Go back home, prepare again until you have something worth preaching. He says, if, one, if a man can preach one sermon without mentioning Christ in it, it ought to be his last. Spurgeon tells a story of a man who said, I'll come hear you preach if you preach a sermon without Christ in it. Spurgeon said, then man, you will never hear me preach. Love that. In my favorite Spurgeon quote, one of them, there's so many of them, is this. A Christless sermon is a brook without water, a cloud without rain, a well which mocks the traveler. What a phrase that a thirsty traveler comes to get their, their thirst quenched and they're just turned away unless there is Jesus at the center of it. And that's what Paul is telling us. Yet today you can hear a sermon and never hear Jesus. Much of today's preaching can be divided into three categories. Tradition, self-help and leadership and philosophy and psychology. And Paul is saying that we must be careful, never replace the message of the gospel with anything other than Christ. You must be very careful, and this is my burden for you, as you listen to podcasts, as you read books, as you go to church, make sure that Jesus Christ, the cross in the blood, is proclaimed all the time, because that is the faith that we believe in. Nothing else, nothing less, Christ alone. Christ alone. And ultimately, the, the goal of false teaching and fake news is this, is to deceive you. He says this, don't let nobody capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking, from spiritual powers of this world, rather than from Christ. When Paul says, let no one capture you, it had this connotation of being kidnapped. To me, it gives me the picture of a guy with a white van and uh, just circling around a kiddie park and offering suckers to the kids, saying, come with me and get in the van with me. That's how creepy this is. That's what false teaching can do to you. It wants to kidnap you and destroy you. Instead of going to false teaching, look what Paul says. Look at the advice he gives us. As you look at this, what, that's what fake news is. That's what fake gospels is. This is how we look to really grow in faith. Look what he says in verse 6. And now, as you, as, accept, as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, look in verse 7, let your roots grow down into him. 
Let your lives be built on him. And at the end of verse 7, and you will overflow with thankfulness. And here's the truth. Here's what I want you to know. This is what it means to be a Christian. It is putting Jesus at the center of your life. We must place Jesus at the center of everything. And I love the title that Paul uses to bring attention to Jesus. And I want you to realize it's, he uses three words that is unique and it occurs only here. In all of Paul's letters, the first, only time it occurs, and he uses the word Christ, Jesus as Lord. The only time he uses all three to describe Jesus. And he's doing this very intentionally as Christ. Jesus is identified as the promised Messiah, the anointed one, promised to Abraham and David, prophesied by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, and the prophets. Jesus was his human name given at birth, and it means Savior. And Lord is the Greek word, karios. It means supreme authority. And when Jesus is saying Christ Jesus as the Lord, he's saying that Jesus is the center of all true teaching. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies, all the laws, and all the Jews. And he says when it comes, make sure everything you hear is about Jesus, 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 Jesus. And then he says, realize that he's the Savior, not your works like the Jews say, not denying yourself like the Gnostics say. It's Christ alone who saves you. And then he says, and this is powerful, Jesus is the supreme and sovereign God. He's the karyos. He has no rivals and he has no equals. He's the only one worthy of worship, not an angel, not a teacher, not another spiritual being. It is only Christ. And what Paul is so powerfully telling us is Jesus needs to be the center of the life of a believer. And when you place Jesus at the center, let me tell you, when you put Jesus at the center of your life, look what Paul says happens. It's powerful. He says, our roots grow down into him. Our roots grow down into him. I want you to notice, Paul is deliberately evoking a metaphor of botanical growth here. When he talks about roots, this is a biblical metaphor. The psalmist says this, the righteous are like a tree planted by the streams of living waters. Paul says only Jesus can bring the growth. As humans, we're unable to make roots grow. We're unable to make trees grow. This is a work of God. You've ever heard somebody say, man, God's working on that person. Man, God is moving on that person. God is really doing a work in them because it's only God who can do the work. We get in trouble when we try to do God's work for him. Only God can change lives. Only God can change your life. And only God can bring the work. We can't make roots grow. But here's what we can do. We can create an environment for spiritual growth to take place. Just like the farmer waters and weeds and creates an environment to God, for God to bring growth to trees and crops, we must set the environment for God to bring the spiritual growth in our lives. And that's what Paul is telling us. Yes, I do the work. Yes, I move. Yes, I want to do something in you. But you need to create an environment where my spirit can breathe and move in your life. And he tells us how we do this. Look at verse 7. Your faith will grow strong. He says, how? It'll grow strong in the truth you were taught in God's word. God's word brings growth in our lives and it anchors our lives to Jesus. Number one, young people, this is something you need to listen to. God changed my life. He did something amazing. I felt his presence when I went to youth camp. It changed everything. But let me tell you what also changed. I began to learn this point that I must grow in God's word. I learned that I must meditate on the truth of his word regularly. So when I came back from camp, that first time I came back from camp, I started opening the Bible and I started reading through James and I began to let God's word change me. I got up an hour before school and I knew God had changed me. I knew he'd begun the work, but I began to create an environment for God 
have to continue to change. God has called many of you to do great things, but your job now is to create an environment for God's work to continue. And we do that as we meditate on God's word regularly. To meditate means it's continual on your mind. Think about this. Somebody gives you a call. Let me guys have been in a phone call with somebody, and it's really important, but you really know you got to get this other call because that's important. But, man, this is an important call, but you're just enjoying this call. You guys ever been there, you know? And you're like, man, when I get to this important call, let me just get done with that. A couple lines, a couple sentences, and you're like, dude, hold, hold on. I just got to take care of this real quick. So what do you do when you're on the other line with that person you don't really want to talk to as much? Try to make it short because you want to get back to the other line. Why? Because in your mind is that you want to talk to this other person. There's a constant awareness that the person that you really want to talk to is on the other side. That's what it means to meditate on God's word, is we're constantly thinking. We're constantly consumed by it. And we see this in the example of Jesus. Jesus constantly had God's word in his heart. If you look at everything Jesus said in the gospel, it's 1,800 words. Of those 1,800 words, 180 are direct quotations from the Old Testament. That's 10% of Jesus everything Jesus said. And when Jesus came to his hour of temptation and trial in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was dropping scripture like it was hot all over the place. He was just dropping it. Because you need something to anchor you when things get tough. If you have nothing to connect to, if you, if you, have, if you don't have God's word and they're like, I know I heard a sermon on that one time, but let me look for my Bible app. Like when God's word is in your heart, it connects you to God and you can stand and you can walk with God and you can follow God no matter what happens. God's word keeps you from being tossed back and forth. It roots you in him. Because a tree without roots is tumbleweed. A tree without roots is tumbleweed. Anybody's ever driven through West Texas? Tumbleweed all over the place. Just wind, just blowing the tumbleweed everywhere. Man, many Christians are like tumbleweed instead of a rooted tree. They come to church. They get excited. They want to follow God. They're like, man, that's exciting. I love what they said. I'm experiencing that. I want. But then Monday comes, Tuesday comes, the trial comes, the temptation comes. They're just blown away. Why? Because they have not allowed the roots to grow into Christ. you got to get your roots down by the word of God. And you meditate on God's word. And that keeps you when temptation comes, when trials come, when you go back to school, when you go back to the office. You need something bigger than yourselves. You need to be rooted in Christ. And you grow there with his word. Another thing that Paul says that a life that is centered on Jesus is also, look at verse 7, it's overflowing with thankfulness. Overflowing with thankfulness. I love that word. When you really want to center your life on Jesus, you praise and thank Jesus constantly. Constant thanks leads to constantly remembering God's blessings in your life. That's why Jesus instituted communion. He said, what do you say? Do this in remembrance of me. Continually thank me. He wanted us to live with this constant remembrance and state of thanking him for all that he's done for us. Why? Because he needs the thanks. No, because we need to remember what God has done in our lives. In the Old Testament, one of the greatest sins that God addresses over and over with his people is this. He says, you have forgotten me. You don't thank me enough. Do you realize an entire generation of people then enter the promised land and God's purpose for their life because they were not thankful? Let me tell you this, thanksgiving and praise are the pathway into God's presence. The psalmist said in Psalms 104, to enter his gates with thanksgiving, to enter his courts with praise. The simple words, thank you, open yourself up to the presence of God. And when you do that, when you get into the presence of God, everything changes. When was the last time you just said, thank you, Jesus? 
If there's one thing that we need to learn is we need to learn to thank him. Thank him for our jobs. Thank him for our salvation. Because when we don't thank him, we get critical. We get negative. We forget that we've been blessed by so much. But if you would wake up every day and if you would just raise your hands and you would say thank you, something happens. Something inside of you explodes and it creates an atmosphere for the presence of God to remind you how good your God has been good to you thankfulness and that's why we need to worship that's why we need to raise our hands that's why we need to raise our voices that's why we need to cry out to God let me tell you it's important that you learn to praise God it's important that you learn to thank him it does something in you scripture tells us it's a powerful thing and finally we got to learn to pray continually I remember when I graduated college, I asked my mentor, Dr. Gary Royer. He was a missionary to Brazil, planted churches in Utah, all over the inner cities. And he was just a man that I respected greatly. And I said, Dr. Royer, man, I love you. But can I can ask you one question. How have you been so connected to God? How has God been able to use you in such an awesome way? And he looked at me and he said, Benito, one thing, one key, one key in ministry he says, stay connected to God through prayer. I'm like, nah, bro, give me something deep, man. Give me some leadership inside. Give me some quote. And for years, I never truly understood that till last year, where I realized no matter how many podcasts I listen to, how many books I read, how much I try to strategize, man, Benito has so many limitations, but I serve a God who has no limits. And as we as a church, started giving ourselves to fasting and prayer. At the beginning of the years, we started fasting and praying. God has done so many more things that we can imagine. And here's what I'm excited. God is doing more in me than he's doing through me. I'm more excited about the things he's teaching me. I'm more excited about how he's moving in my life than even what he does through me. That's just a bonus, but I just want to know him. I love him. And Jesus wants to be the center of your life. Happens with three things. You got to get in his word. You got to thank him. You got to talk to him. Simple. Pray, worship, and thank, and, and read his word. And constantly you make Jesus the center of your life. And here's the thing what happens. Jesus begins to work in your life. He begins to move in your life. It's not rules or regulations. It's just putting yourself in a place to get in his presence so he can bring the change. Because see, Jesus is the one that changes your life. And Paul makes it very clear that it's Christ alone that our faith is built on. It's all about Jesus. He's indispensable to our faith. And there's people, there's just some people who are indispensable. Christ is indispensable to the Christian. I don't know if you like sports or not, but Jesus is to Christianity what LeBron James was to the Cleveland Cavaliers. <laughs> if you've been under a rock, LeBron James has left the Cavs and he's gone to the Lakers. Glad he didn't go to the Spurs because we don't need him. Man, look like we're having our own exodus too, right? Any Spurs fans? But with LeBron, the Cavs go to four straight NBA championships. Now that he left the Cavs, the chances of them, according to Vegas, to get back and win the NBA championship are 500 to 1. LeBron James is indispensable to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Like, think about this. My favorite show, one of the greatest pieces of art, probably the last time I ever watched sitcoms, was Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and the Will Smith. Just beautiful, beautiful, like, writing and acting. Picked up so many girls using those lines by Fresh Prince. But what would have happened if Will Smith walked out of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in the 1990s and Carlton had to be there? Exactly. The show's over. William Smith was indispens- Will Smith was indispensable to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. 
How many office fans do we have in this place? What happened if Steve Carell stopped showing up to work? Oh, never mind. He did. What happened? The show stops. What happens in the crew? If the crew of an airplane, all the stewardess and the pilots go to sleep at the same time in midair. And you start plummeting. Like, wow, he's right. We cannot be there. What LeBron is to the cab, Jesus is to the church. What the pilot and the crew is to the plane, Jesus is to the church. I just want you to understand that. You need Jesus. He is indispensable. He's all you need. He's all that you're longing for. He is the entire plan of God in your life. Colossians 1.18 says, Christ is the head of the church. In the lie coming to the church of Colossus, in the lie coming to our culture, is that Jesus isn't enough. That you need to follow laws, that you, that you need to do all these things, that, Lord, you need to follow all these principles, that you need to find prosperity in Jesus. You need all these different lives. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus is enough. He is enough. And here's the good news, that it's Jesus and Jesus alone who is at work in the life of a believer. He's the one, his work, his work. Jesus is at work in the life of a believer. When you were dead because of your sins, verse 13 says, then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. What Jesus did on the cross for you was so complete, it made it possible, according to Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, to call us blameless, holy in his sight, free from accusation, without blemish, that we are totally free, redeemed, and saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. We can't add anything to it. He's all we need. He's all we need for salvation. He is working. He did the work. It's finished in the cross. And we understand that. But here's what I also want to let you know. Not only is Christ all you need for salvation, he's all you need for sanctification. Sanctification is a big religious word, and that means that Jesus is continually working and making you like Jesus. Like you want to grow. That means spiritual growth is sanctification. And there's a beautiful verse that Paul tells in the beginning part of Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 you and I haven't memorized this memorize it it's so powerful that God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery the gospel which is Christ in you the hope of glory here is the plan of God Christ underline that in you the hope of glory prepositions are important here it's not Christ with you it's not Christ near you it's Christ in you. People tell me all the time, I, Pastor, I just want to be closer to God. See, if you've accepted Jesus Christ and you have trusted his work on the cross, you can't get any closer to God than you are right now. He's in you. Let, let me just prove this. Those of you that are in the Freedom Church this morning, you're sitting here in the sanctuary. You're in the sanctuary. I want you to come up with a way that you can get closer to the sanctuary than you are right now. You're in the sanctuary. You're in here. That no matter where you go in the sanctuary, you're in the sanctuary. You're in it. And the Bible is clear. And here's the beautiful news. That if you are a believer, Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. It's an amazing thing. It's the glory of the what does he say? It's the hope of the glory. It's the promise that God has given us. But here's the problem. People come up and say, Benito, you, you don't understand. You don't know what I did this week. You know what I watched this week. You don't know how I blew it this week. Yeah, we do. 
You're human. We fail. We mess up. That's why John says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Some people falsely think because they sin, God turns his back on them. That's not the case. Let me tell you, when we sin, if Christ is in us, it deeply grieves Jesus. It deeply grieves the spirit of God that is in us. When we sin, it injures us. It hurts people around us. It causes all kinds of chaos. Please hear me. Sin is insidious. It's destructive. It'll cause undescribable chaos in your life. You can lose your family, your job, your career. Sin is horrible it's the worst thing but let me tell you about sin it cannot separate you from the love of god he loves you even though you're in your sin and even though you're facing the consequences of your sin christ is all we need for salvation and our sanctification and only he can bring spiritual growth and here's the job here's the challenge for many of us we never live the victorious christian life Because we never center our lives in Jesus. And we're tossed back and forth. We've gone here and there. And we wonder like, man, why do I not have an appetite for God? And Paul is saying, man, it's all about Jesus. And the job of the believer is to create an environment where God's Holy Spirit can bring the change in our lives that he can only bring. That he changes the desires. But we got to say, God, I'm tired of the sin. I'm tired of the junk. I know that you love me. But you bring that change because I want you. So let's apply this sermon as we close. 